Please be seated. As you take your seat, you can turn with me in your copy of the Word of God to Romans, Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 13, as we consider the first seven verses this morning. Romans 13, the lesson, as you know, is already in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along there. Paul has been talking in chapter 12 about relationships amongst Christians, how we share our spiritual gifts, and last time we were together, how we are to love one another, how we are to respect one another and get along with each other. Well, we come to chapter 13, and Paul turns from the body of Christ to the Christian's responsibility to the state or to civil authorities. What does it look like for a conscientious Christian, an authentic Christian, to live out his or her life in the world, in general, and specifically, how we deal with authorities, with the civil magistrate? And so Paul gives us instruction in these areas. It's very simple and very much to the point. I want you to notice two things this morning. Number one, the authority of the state, and we see that in verses 1 through 3. And then secondly, the ministry of the state, which I believe Paul outlines in verses 4 through 7. So along with an outline of the message, join me in prayer. Let's ask God to bless our time in Bible study together on this Lord's Day. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, forgive the preacher for his sins are many. We wish to see Jesus and him only. And so we pray that you would move through your word, by your spirit, in our hearts. Lead us into all truth and accomplish your good, pleasing, and perfect will in every one of our lives. We ask all these things humbly now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, first of all, I want you to notice the authority of the state. And Paul seems to be dealing with that in the first three verses. In verses 1 and 2... He begins with a clear command of universal application. Let everyone, every person be in subjection to the governing authorities. And then he gives the reason for this requirement. Namely, the state's authority is derived from none other than God himself. Derived from God. And he affirms this three times. He says God, first of all, in verse 1b, is the origin of of all authority. In other words, wherever there is any authority at all, it is derived from God himself. The Bible makes that clear in a number of places. We read about it this morning in Isaiah 45. As the Lord God, through the prophet Isaiah, spoke concerning Cyrus the Persian and the fact that God himself would raise him up and use him sovereignly to help his people return to their homeland. The Bible says the heart of the king is in the hand of God, and he can turn it any which way he desires, because he is Lord of all. You also think of Daniel, where Daniel spoke under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Most High rules the kingdoms of men, and he gives it to whom he will, and sets over it the lowliest of men. And so God is the origin of all authority. He says it another way by saying the authorities that exist have been established by God. Look at the very end of verse 1. And those which exist are established 
by God. And then he says in verse 2a, rebellion to established authorities is essentially a rebellion against God. Look at verse 2a. Therefore, he who resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. Now, after he calls for submission, Paul in verse 2b warns against rebellion. He says, and they that have opposed or opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. Consequently, it's both right and wise to submit to the governing authorities. Why? Because if you don't, you will receive the force of the state. It will not be uh, to your advantage, to say the least. Then in verse 3, Paul goes on to elaborate on the ruler's role and the responsibility in dealing with submission and rebellion. Look at verse 3. Rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. Now, let me hasten to say that Paul's favorable depiction of rulers, of the civil magistrate, as commending the right and opposing the wrong, is a statement of the divine ideal, not the human reality. Let me say that again. It's a statement of the divine ideal and not necessarily the human reality. We should view this passage as a general statement about how Christians should relate to government, how they conduct themselves in the civil arena, with exceptions assumed but not spelled out in this particular passage. There are exceptions at times. The statement that rulers commend those who do right and punish those who do wrong is not invariably true. As Paul knew perfectly, Paul himself was beaten and jailed unjustly. In Acts chapter 16, when he was at Philippi, and if all the provincial courts were just, then Paul never would have needed to appeal to Caesar, as he did in Acts chapter 25, verse 11. Because governments, the civil magistrate is made up of sinful men and women. Sometimes they get it wrong. Paul experienced the benefits of Roman justice. Many times the Romans are the ones who protected him against the Jews. Nevertheless, he knew about the miscarriage of justice in, and especially the case, of Jesus Christ, his condemnation. It was all political. The Romans didn't like the Jews. The Jews didn't like the Romans. And in order to appease the Jews, Pontius Pilate had Christ delivered up in a very unjust manner. Now, it's plain from other apostolic writings that the state can rightly command obedience only within the limits of the purposes for which it has been divinely instituted. But the state must be resisted when it demands allegiance due to God only. Thus, obedience that the Christian owes to the state is never absolute, but at the most partial and contingent. Whenever the state begins to assume the role of God, whenever it calls out for things that belong only to God, then the Christian has a duty and an obligation of civil disobedience. Even the Apostle Peter said things like this. Look at first, or listen to 1 Peter 3, 13 and 14. Peter says, Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is right? Speaking of the civil magistrate. 
But, verse 14, even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. Peter is saying, ordinarily, if you do what is right and you follow the laws and you obey, you will be commended for that. That's a good thing. But there will be occasions when you do what is right and you suffer. And we know that can be the case whenever there are there is evil amongst the authorities. God established human government, but what happens when humans abuse it? If they reverse their God-given duty, commending those who do evil and punishing those who do good? Does the requirement of submission still stand in such a morally perverse situation? To put it another way, is Paul calling for absolute submission to people like Adolf Hitler, Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, Saddam Hussein. There have been many, many regimes where there was evil at the top. And Christians sought to obey as far as they could, but it came to a point where they could no longer submit to the civil magistrate. If the state commands what God forbids or forbids the Christian from doing what God commands, then it's time for civil disobedience. Outside of that, we are to strive to obey and to be good citizens as much as possible. I think of the Apostle Peter and the other apostles when they put before the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5, and they said, do not preach this gospel anymore. In Peter's famous words, we must obey God rather than men. Sometimes you'll be called on to do that very thing. This is the strict meaning of civil disobedience. Disobeying a particular human law because it contradicts with God's law. So we have to be careful. We live in a society where Christians, well-meaning but seriously mistaken Christians in the past, have bombed abortion clinics. That is not godly. That is not godly. That is taking the law into your own hands. The state is not forcing you to have an abortion. The allowance of it does not constitute a reason to oppose the state like that. No, there are peaceable ways to oppose. And I thank God that Christians for many, many years have opposed abortion until finally, after 50 years, the law of Roe versus Wade is overturned. Sometimes things in God's providence call us to wait, to be patient, to pray, and to state our differences and our opposition, but do it in a godly manner. And God changes things in his good time. Well, that is the authority of the state. Now, notice in verse 4 through 7, the ministry of the state. The ministry of the state. For indeed, Paul calls it a minister of God in verse 4. Let me mention a few things here, verse by verse. First, in verse 4, the state functions as God's instrument to restrain evil and promote good in society. The state bears the sword in order to enforce legitimate laws. Notice what Paul says. It's a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. And then he says it again. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath upon the one who practices evil. The restraint and punishment of evil are universally recognized as primary responsibilities of the state. One commentator puts forward that because Paul uses the sword in several other places in the Bible, in Romans 8.35, Acts 12.2, and Revelation 13.10, it is a picture of death. 
In other words, it's a realization that capital punishment is sometimes a necessary thing. Whenever we take the preciousness of life, when one person kills another, we need to recognize there is a range of punishment. And I believe in the United States we practice that better than any other nation on the planet with the numerous appeal processes so that no one is facing capital punishment until all those appeals are run out. We try our best to do the right thing, to respect human law and human beings because they're made in the image of God. And so the state functions as God's instrument to restrain evil and to promote good in society. Look at verse 5. The Christian has a higher motive than others to submit to civil authority. Wherefore, Paul says it's necessary to be in subjection, not only because of wrath, not only because you fear the punishment, but also for conscience' sake. As a non-believer may obey to avoid punishment, the Christian has a higher motive or a higher reason to obey the civil magistrate. It's his or her conscience. Our consciences are subject to the word of God. Therefore, a Christian submits to the ministry of the state for the sake of keeping a clear conscience before the Lord, not just to avoid punishment. And then look at verse 6. Christians support the state with their money. Paul goes on to say, because of this, <clears throat> excuse me, you also pay taxes. For rulers are servants of God, devoting themselves to this very thing. You know, there's an ugly and a growing hostility toward law enforcement officers in this country. I'm sure that's no surprise to you. I was reading an article the other day. San Francisco Police Department is having a hard time getting brand new cadets, even though they're willing to pay them $120,000 when they graduate from the academy. Why is that? Because in many, many cities, the police officers are not supported. And nowadays, if you're a police officer, you risk either losing your job or even imprisonment because you try to enforce the law. Now, let me hasten to say that there are always going to be rogue police officers. We need to look at that. But the Christian should offer a sense of balance to a lost society so that we don't go to the extreme of saying, let's defund the police. And we don't go to the extreme of saying whatever they do is right because they bear the sword, they have the authority. No. The Christian is the one that gives a sense of balance to our society. We should pay our dues, as Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And then in verse 7, Christians support the state with their attitude. Look at verse 7. Render to all what is due to them. Tax to whom taxes due, custom to whom custom is due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor is due. Christians not only pay their taxes, they demonstrate their respect and their gratitude for these God-given servants and the service they render to us. In other words, Christians should not join the chorus of voices degrading those who sit in positions of authority. And that's a pet peeve of mine. I have to catch myself sometimes. We all have opinions. And now that we have social media, we can express those opinions very loudly, very forcefully. And we can join the chorus of being critical and ugly and unkind to others we don't agree with. But the Bible says a Christian doesn't handle himself that way. A Christian should not join that chorus. 
We may not like the platform, we may not like the particular party or the candidate, but that does not give us the right to say ugly, ungodly things about them in public or on social media. We would do well to stay out of politics when it comes to media. But to do that, we have to be secure that God Almighty is over all kingdoms and kings, that God Almighty is the one who truly sits in the big chair, and he is orchestrating his purposes. And therefore, we can pray for our leaders, regardless of what party they have. We can pray for the upcoming election, that it would have good results, and that God would be honored through it. And regardless of who wins, that we would continue to demonstrate good citizenship, that we would pray for our president and his cabinet and for elected leaders in Congress. And so in summary, Paul gives us a very positive concept of the state in these verses. And consequently, Christians who recognize the state's authority and ministry come from God will do more than just tolerate government as if it were a necessary evil. No, conscientious Christian citizens will submit to its authority and honor its representatives and pay their taxes and pray for its welfare. They will also encourage the state to fulfill its God-appointed role. And insofar as they have the opportunity, actively participate in its work. We need more Christians involved in government, more Christians involved in the civic arena, in order to have that balancing impact upon that sphere of life. So as I mentioned, this is very simple this morning. We ought to respect the authorities. My brother is a police or was a police officer with Orlando Police Department many years ago. The first call he had, he went and uh, stopped somebody on the road, and the thing that they said was to him, I hope your mother dies. <laughs> that was his first encounter with the lovely public. <laughs> and it didn't stop there. And he understood perfectly why. Police officers suffer and, and get such a hard time and even develop bitterness and rage and why they have so many domestic problems. They have a hard job to do. I got stopped by a police officer two or three years ago, and I was going too fast. He pulled me over, and uh, he said, Sir, do you know what you were doing? I said, Yes, I do. I was in the wrong. I was breaking the law. I was in a hurry to get somewhere, and I am sorry. He was shocked. He didn't end up giving me a ticket. <laughs> he said, well, let me just give you a warning. And I said, thank you so much. Can I pray for you? <laughs> I said, I'd have prayed for you if you gave me a ticket. But uh, you are a minister of God on the streets in the civil arena, and I want to pray for your safety, and I want to pray for your well-being of you and your family. And he allowed me to. I'll never forget that experience. That's the way the Lord wants us to conduct ourselves with civil Authorities, We demonstrate the security of worshiping and knowing the one true and living God. We don't demonstrate the insecurity of those who have no God and are going through life blindly and clawing for what they want. That is not the Christian experience. And so Paul gives us this summary. And I could stop there, I'd be faithful to the passage, but... I want to pursue just for a moment and apply the entire concept of submission to authority. 
See, submission to authority is extremely biblical. It goes far beyond the state. God has established authority in every sphere of life. In the home, in the church, in your education, in your employment. Ephesians 5, God calls wives to submit to their husbands. Hebrews 13, God calls church members to submit to their leaders. And by good and necessary inference, we learn that when we go to school, we are to submit to our instructors. When we go to work, we are to submit to our employer and make the boss look good and not complain and bellyache like so many other people do. No, the Christian's way is different. Submission is very important to God. In fact, God told Saul through Samuel that rebellion is as the sin of divination. Witchcraft. We've got to think seriously when we are poised to rebel against the Lord in a number of spheres. And just as all authorities are established by God, so also all genuine submission is rooted in our submission to God. See, it's very easy for us to pat ourselves on the back and say, well, John, I, I drive the speed limit. I'm better than a pastor. You know, <laughs> I pay my taxes. I, I'm supportive of the police. I'm not marching to defund the police and that sort of thing. But what about God's word? You know, sometimes we go to God's word and we, like in a cafeteria, we pick and choose because we're avoiding perhaps an area where God is calling for our submission to what he has said. That's hard, isn't it? He said through the prophet Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 19 and 20, If you submit and obey, you will eat the best of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And nothing could be clearer than James 4, verses 1 and 7. James says, What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of the pleasures that wage war in your members? And he ends it by saying, Submit therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, there's rebellion in all of our hearts. And the only one who can genuinely remove that rebellion is the Lord God Almighty through Jesus why do we rebel? We, I, I think because we try to satisfy the inner hunger of the soul with external things, with the world and with the flesh. I want this, Lord. I want a spouse, Lord. Why haven't you provided one? I want a promotion, Lord. I want to make more money. I want to have friends. I want this. I want that. We try to satisfy what's really down deep inside of us, the hunger of the soul with external things. That's perfectly in order to want a wife, to want a promotion, to want a job, to want to do your work well. But if those things take the place of our Lord and the deep down hunger of your soul to have peace with God through Christ, then they're going to become an idol and submission. And peace will elude your grasp. That's why the Lord said, seek me first. Seek the kingdom of God first. And all these other things will be added unto you. By obeying the gospel, 
We submit our lives to Christ. You see, our problem is human sin. And sin leads to rebellion. It always leads to rebellion in just about every sphere of the human experience. You can go through the Bible. The fall of man in the Garden of Eden was a result of rebellion. Cain's murder of Abel in chapter 4 of Genesis, the rebellion. The corruptions leading to the flood in Genesis 6 through 9. The Tower of Babel. Just those experiences. And we haven't even gotten out of Genesis 1 through 11. It demonstrates what sin does. It corrupts our hearts. It messes up the understanding of what our true hunger is. Nevertheless, God graciously made a way for us to return to him, to submit to his loving authority as the Lord over our lives through the gospel. That is precisely why Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, if you're tired of trying to find something that you can put into your life, something, some person, in order to give you peace, if you're weary and tired of that, come to me and take my yoke upon you. In other words, submit your life to me. Stop trying to control the outcome. Stop thinking that you always land on all fours whenever you fall. No, that's not who the Lord moves toward and saves. It's the one who says, I can't bear this any longer. I can't find whatever it is that's going to satisfy my life. It must be something internal. Christ says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your soul. You keep trying to cram something in your life to set you free or to satisfy the inner longings of the heart, it will never work. But if you submit your life to Christ, you will experience, I believe, what the psalmist experienced when he said, bring my soul out of prison. That's the real problem. It's not that I need this fix or that person or this thing to happen in my life. What I need is for my heart to be set free. And in order for that, I need to submit to Christ, to come to him, confess my need, for he says my yoke is easy and my load is light. It's a fearful thing to become a Christian because it involves yielding your life in submission to him. But when you do, you discover what true freedom is all about. Because he comes to live inside of you, and he takes all your sin away. And he gives you forgiveness and cleanliness of heart so that you can go forward as a secure person and love others and submit yourself because you're not having to prove yourself or to find yourself. You can submit yourself because of the peace that resides in you. Do you have that peace? Have you asked Jesus Christ to come into your life to forgive you of your sins and to give you eternal life so that you can start losing your life now in his lordship and in obedience and submission to him? If you haven't, I invite you to do that today, even now, as we pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus Christ who dealt with all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of our 
cosmic treason, turning away from you, seeking our own way, trying to get what we want out of his life. And the Lord Jesus lost his life so that we might have life. Lord, I pray today in the quietness of the hearts of all that are here, if some or one or any, Lord, have never embraced Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would interrupt their lives, their schedule, and that you would invade their hearts and that they would submit their entire life to you, Lord Jesus, that they might discover true peace and true freedom. Father, for the rest of us, help us to continue to cling to Jesus. Help us to say with the Apostle Paul, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, Christ lives in me as I lead my life on this earth. May we all submit to the governing authority of Christ over our lives as King, as Lord, and as Savior. Give us the grace to do these things, Lord, and we'll give you all the praise and the glory for what you will do in our lives. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.